Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is good and it's right. And oh, this is a, this is a text uh, launching into a sermon that is fraught with landmines everywhere and challenges and tricks everywhere. But what you call us to and what you invite us to is, is not to burden us, but to help humanity flourish. Your word's always for that purpose. It's always trying to show us a way of living that's loving to our neighbors and loving to you. As we find a text that puts us right in the, the difficult place of trying to navigate our posture and our position in culture, would you tenderize our hearts? Would you sharpen our minds? And would you flood this place with a very real sense of your presence? As we go to this text, God, what we need more than anything else, what we need every week, what we pray for every Sunday, is that we would leave this time more impressed with Jesus Christ. Would you make him loud? Would you make him loud in our prayers, in our songs, in our conversations, communion during this sermon? Would you make him very loud to us tomorrow morning until throughout this week until we gather again as your people? In Jesus' name, amen. I recently read an article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism, and it, it, it's one of many articles that I've read in the last number of years around this theme of um, cultural's overall response to Bible-believing Christians, and it starts back in the kind of the 20s and 30s, and, and it walks through these kind of three phases, and it says that culture's response was very positive. The, the cultural perspective on, on what Christians and the Bible taught and believed and how they cared, that was very positive. And then we hit a phase where it became what, what this author and many authors would argue, it became neutral, that it, there, there was maybe an indifference. It's kind of like, it's fine, it's not for me. Um, but then it got to a place of, of, of negative, that the, the culture and the, the, the author would argue that we now live in a time that we're in the negative. And in some ways, this, this maps on what we're about to see in, in Daniel. If you go to the end of Daniel 2, you see King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the leader of the great, this great global superpower of Babylon. He's bowing down before the one true God. And he's handing out promotions to this group of individuals that were captive. They were from a 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. Their, their city had been ransacked, and, and they're brought back into to Babylon. And, 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 and the king is actually handing out, making them big leaders in the kingdom. That's how chapter 2 ends. But then we get into chapter 3, and the king is about to, to flip his perspective completely and try to, 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 to crush anyone that doesn't have allegiance to him and bow down to him. Larry Osborne, we've, we've heard this line multiple times in the, the intro video, says this, in a few short decades, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to outright hostility. Now, I know we could nuance this a lot of ways. It kind of depends the pocket you're in, perhaps, but these are just an overall statement, at least in the Western world, perhaps North America. Tim Keller, in his book, How to Reach the West Again, says this, we are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christian, but an actual social cost. Rod Dreyer in his book, The Benedict Option, says this, 
But American Christians are going to have to come to terms with the brute fact that we live in a culture, one in which our beliefs make increasingly little sense. We speak a language that the world more and more either cannot hear or finds offensive to its ears. And you could debate, is it more now? Has there never been another place? But, but I think many of us at least feel a sense of this. So what do you do? What can you do? Week after week, we've been asking that question. We've been walking through this book of Daniel in this series called Feel God. Like, how do we, how do we navigate this moment? So we're going to go to God's Word, and we're going to look at God's people who experienced many, many extreme versions of maybe some of the difficulties that you might be feeling trying to live for Christ in a world that doesn't seem to love them. We're going to look at what it looks like to be a countercultural people that I pray that we love our neighbors and we love our cities, and we love our communities, as we love our God, and yet struggle through what it looks like to not conform or compromise as we live in these communities. Specifically, what we're going to look at as we navigate this is the challenge to conform, the choice we must make, and the Christ who is with us in the fire. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to walk through, Lord willing, in this entire chapter, um, but I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and then we'll read the remaining as we, as we walk through Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 and following. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded... O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, they came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Feel free to grab a seat. One trick in applying this passage is the situation of Daniel 3 feels 
remarkably different than the situation that probably all of us in this room find ourselves in. I mean, when was the last time someone set up uh, a mighty statue and said, bow down or you're going to burn? But in reality, we face a similar situation all the time. Conform or face the consequences. Now, we could work this out a number of ways. We could talk about conformity to the idols of our culture. And this is a sermon my wife was like, this is one of those you got to kind of listen the whole way through because we're going to probably offend everyone at some point in it and hopefully point to our Christ at the end of it. But it could be the idols of the left. It could be the idols of the right. It could be the idols that come out of the church, the idols of comfort or power. We have these counterfeit gods that we fabricate, the idols of our children and their future success. I mean, we, we could talk about that and how that gets erected out of certain places and this call to bow down. It could, be, it could be just the cultural conformity to, like, media consumption. I mean, you look at, like, the, the top ten list on Netflix. It's the culture's way of saying this is what you should watch. And when you watch it, when you shouldn't, you're bowing your knees Where I want to take this, though, is not our cultural idols or cultural norms, but I actually want to focus on the power and prevalence of ideologies, because I think this is where we find ourselves at this cultural moment. Many of us are feeling this, what do I do with the belief systems and the ideas that are being forced on me? Um, An ideology defined according to uh, Webster is this, the set of ideas and beliefs of a group or political party. A set of beliefs or ideas of a political party. And this actually fits really well with this text. The, the, the cubits, what this would have been, was a 90-foot statue made of gold, and it's set up in the plain of Dura. The plain of Dura is actually where the Tower of Babylon was set up. So if you go back to the beginning part of your Bible, there's this tower that, the, the, that people fabricated and created to try to show their might and their power. And this text actually says that, that you think it's like, it's like a coronation service. It's like an inauguration. You have all of the bigwigs are there. That's this repetitive line of the governors and the precepts and the satraps and all. Like, everyone's gathered around, and then you have this herald declare, okay, when you hear the the music start, and if you notice in the text, it says all of these languages, all of these peoples, this is supposed to be like global domination and allegiance to the statue that's raised up. It's conform or get crushed. Now, as you take this idea, this set of beliefs or ideas, as we begin to apply this, um, from that definition, I, I think you can see it everywhere. You can see it in politics. You can see it in economics. You can see it in conversations around gender. You can see it in cultural presentations and church presentations. It's all sides around sexuality. It's ideas and beliefs of the powerful erected and set up in a call for you to bow. Um, Carl Truman says this. He says, our postmodern world sees all claims to truth as bids for power, all stable categories as manipulative. And the task of the academy, here he's talking about the university system. We could apply this probably in lots of ways. But the task of the academy is to catechize students into this orthodoxy. It's an interesting insight. It says, failure to conform to new orthodoxies on race, morality, sexual orientation, and gender identity 
is the main reason Orthodox Christianity is despised today. The slightest hint of opposition disqualifies one from admission to polite society. The pressure is real. And it's palpable, I imagine, for so many of you. Your employer makes a certain policy decision and you have to decide what do you do with it. Your school adopts a certain curriculum and you have to decide what do I do with it. Society says this is what you must think. And when I say society, obviously there's so many pockets and it depends what voice. I'm just, what's the dominant note that's being struck at the various times? This is what you must think about marriage. This is what you must think about the unborn. This is what you must think about immigration. This is what you must think about euthanasia. This is what you must think about parenting. This is what you must think about gender. This is, this is what you, this, these, are, these are the various things that are being erected. And like it, it happens on all the sides. Everyone is constantly being commanded to bow down. Give me an example. I read a lot of opinion pieces from, I try to read from a variety of sources. And uh, so I was reading one from the Wall Street Journal recently. And, it, and the title was this, when asked what your pronoun, when asked what are your pronouns, don't answer. So it's an opinion piece, just when someone says what are your pronouns. And, uh, the reason I'm bringing these up, and I know this is like touching third rail after third rail after third rail, you know, for most of, most of COVID, since we've been back together, I've been so grateful to get to preach because I don't have to wear a mask right now. I would do anything to swap spots with you. But the reason I bring it up is this is what we're being fed. These are the things I'm being asked constantly in the conversations that we're having. And so this opinion piece is when asked, what are your pronouns? Don't answer. And the punchline from it was, was this, and this is why I bring it in. It's just talking into belief systems of a culture and what do we do with it. The punchline was this, a seemingly innocuous question masks a demand for conformity. Now, whatever you believe about pronouns, I'm going to revisit this in a minute. So if you're really excited, maybe don't get too excited. If you're really angry, maybe don't get too angry. Um, whatever you believe about pronouns and gender, whether to answer or not, to accommodate or not, I think it's clear how powerful this is because it dominates so much of our conversation and it feels like it's come out of nowhere. Let me ask you this question. What happens when your deeply held, held sincere, biblical, okay? Biblical. Say, can you say that with me? Biblical. It's the most important word in this statement. What happens when your sincerely, deeply held biblical beliefs conflict with what the culture worships. Let me give you a brief moment of sanity here. If you take a historical or global perspective on suffering and persecution of the Christian church, um, there are places, tragically, that our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and martyred. The, like, the, the reality is like being thrown into a fiery furnace is likely not going mainstream here anytime soon. Okay, so we could get a little perspective and there still is struggles and challenges and difficulty. And I want to talk about two aspects that I think really play into this um, for, for us. I, I would throw these out. Cancel culture and the, the call to signal virtue. Um, so cancel culture and virtue signaling. In verse 7, it's interesting because you have this, therefore, as soon as the people's heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, and it goes to this, then you were supposed to, to bow. Something was broadcast, and now you need to show what you think about what was broadcast by bowing or not bowing. It was going to reveal what you actually think. You were signaling agreement 
whether it was genuine or not, right, the, the agreement here was, if you don't do this, we kill you. And so it's not surprising that people said, whatever, I'll just bow. Um, virtue signaling, Cambridge Dictionary uh, defines it like this, an attempt to show other people that you are a good person, for example, by expressing opinions that would be acceptable to them, especially on social media. Cancel culture, that I think is so related to all of this. A way of behaving in a society or group, especially on social media, which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because they have said or done something that offends you. If you don't bow, you get canceled. And what's interesting is I think this text takes this and it plays it out in an interesting way because if you go down to verse 12, you have this statement, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, paid no attention to you. Was it really true they paid no attention? They were the best of the best in that host culture. They were faithful and dutiful. That's why they got the promotions. That's what, they, they were gracious and winsome and hardworking. If you go back to Daniel 1, they were, they were brilliant. They were, they were well-studied. They were thoughtful. But there was something they weren't willing to do. They weren't willing to worship the king as much as they still stayed in the service to the king. You can do it perfect. I want to tell you, this will be like the most, maybe discouraging, but, I, but realistic. You can do it perfect. You can be kind and thoughtful and winsome and loving and still get chucked in the fire. You're going to have to accept it. When COVID started, I was encouraged by some people in the church to um, get an Instagram account. Um, you know, we're all quarantined, all isolated, all distanced, and, and some, a number of people actually said, you know, it would be a great way for you just to stay up on people's lives um, and also maybe just every now and then just like post something that's encouraging or thoughtful or heartwarming or whatever it was. And so I said, okay. And um, so I signed up for an account and began to try to find people to follow and began to try to, to, to post a, a few things. And, I, and honestly, it, it just, it was terrible. <laughs> like I haven't had Facebook since Gutenberg. Like I don't, like, like, like I, I, I it's, I, God bless you if you can do it. I just, it was, now I, I, I'm still kind of one of those lurkers in the background, so I don't post anything ever. I just, it is really cool to see like your pictures on, oh, we celebrate our anniversary or here, you know, Valentine's Day, people are doing like this thing with Valentine's Day is coming, so they post pictures of like their weddings and like that's been really fun and to see updates about babies and all those things, but the pressure to post was, was unnerving. Something happens in the news that's crazy complicated and really important. And you better make sure that whatever you posted, you are on the right side of history or you're canceled. And it would be one thing after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. And you know what? All of us just became this experts in everything. When we're experts in almost nothing, amen? And I don't know if you felt it, but I sure felt it, so I just, I stopped. <laughs> I deleted every post, and I think I made it through like 12 of them. And I said, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. The challenge to conform, the pressure to conform, the pressure to bow as you hear the sound is so real. In 2001, I was freshly married. I've been married a couple years, and I was working a great job as a graphic designer in 
Seattle is kind of a dream job and, and one of my favorite cities that I grew up in and I had this rad office down right above Pike Place Market and, and I was taking, uh, I was commuting home one day I had this really deep sense that, that I was supposed to quit my job and go off to seminary. And so I came home and I told my wife and we processed and we prayed through and we made the decision, yeah, we think this is what the Lord has for us. And I remember as we began to share that news with family and friends, someone very close to me said this. He said, I, I, I don't think you should. I don't think you should quit your job and go do this. He said, listen, if it's fine if Jesus is, I just remember this, it's fine if Jesus is your hobby but your life shouldn't revolve around him. Hmm. But that sentiment might be even sneakier and perhaps deadlier than outright threats and hostility. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't requiring people to change their religion or their beliefs just to subordinate them. He didn't require them to fully convert. He just said, just make sure your God is second or third or fourth. Ian DeGuid in his book, uh, his commentary on Daniel says this, when put in these terms, it becomes evident that our culture places the same pressure on each one of us to put our God in second place, albeit in more subtle ways. We too find ourselves constantly pressed to keep our beliefs private and therefore secondary. We are told that the public sphere must be kept untainted by any religion. For any other opinion threatens the unified dogma of the separation of church and state. We can believe whatever we want by all means. However, we are strongly discouraged from talking about it or trying to influence the beliefs of others. And you see this play out in a billion different ways. You know, every high school student in our church knows this when you sit in biology. Now, I was talking to a buddy, someone who's part of this church, and he says, it feels like an act of courage now when someone asks you at the office, what are you doing this weekend, to say, oh, I'm going to church. So what do we do with this? It's called a bow down before erected ideas that maybe you're dissonant with our God, or, or this call to just simply subordinate your God. Just keep them quiet. Just keep them on the side. Keep it very private. What do we do with this? Well, you got to make a choice. And that's where we see this text go, verses 13 and following, 13 through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He was talking about college students, and uh, man, I love the history of some of our young adults in this church. There was one young man who, um, he's got to be the most dialed, 
probably human, but I'll just put it in the context of like college students. He was 21. He was getting ready to, to graduate. And I just watched him from the time that he came to be part of our church until he, was, until he graduated. He was just so dialed. He was so disciplined. And I remember asking him one day, we're standing, I was actually up here, and it was after service, and I said, dude, like, how, how did you stay so focused and committed through your college years when so many people end up in the weeds? And he reached into his pocket and he pulled out this little laminated card. He said, when I was at a basketball camp in the summer when I was like 13 or 14, he said, we had this time of dedication. So this Christian basketball game, we had this time of dedication, and, 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 and we were challenged by the coaches to make a choice. And now, there's a series of choices on this card that says, I will not drink. I won't fool around before I'm married. I'm going to find a church and commit to it. And he, they still had this, he still had it, you know, this many years later. This laminated, and basically what it was saying is, I'm choosing Christ. And every other choice will flow from making that choice. When I was 13, I said, you know what? I'm going to live for Christ. And so when I'm faced with all the other choices, I've already made my choice. You got to choose before you choose. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says it like this. We make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. Make your choice. And your choice will make you, when did, when did, how is it possible in Daniel 3, the, the, like, imagine the fear. How are they willing to stand? Well, go back to Daniel 1. It says they resolved themselves. As they were brought into this kingdom, they knew they were in a host culture. They knew there was going to be areas of dissonance with what they believed and where they lived. And they said, we resolve ourselves to not defile ourselves. We're going to live for Christ. And then all the other stuff is going to flow from it. You got to choose before you have to choose because there's lots of choices that we're all faced with all the time. You're going to make your choice. Even though, and then in my notes I had might, and I crossed it out, and it says will cost you. You're going to make your choice even though it will cost you. For most people familiar, even partially, vaguely familiar with the Bible, you know how this story plays out. You, you, you know there's deliverance coming, but when they made the choice to not bow, they did not know. They just said, you know what? We're not bowing. Our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. They didn't know how it would play out. God can deliver us. We're not saying he will, but it doesn't matter. We won't bow down. God's our God, not you. Alistair Begg in his book, Brave by Faith, says it like this. He says, facing the fire as we live, obedient to God, and refuse to worship what our society bows down to is not strange. It is the normal life of the believer. Faith is still obedience despite the consequences. We are called to obey even when it won't work out well for us. We are called to obey even when it seems better not to. Pragmatism is the enemy of obedience. When we base our decision-making on what looks more sensible or beneficial or understandable, then when it comes to, to, to it, we're going to worship our culture's idols instead of obeying God. The Christian life is sometimes, and I, that's, a, that's a helpful word, sometimes going to look like resisting the attractiveness of an idol, refusing to meet the expectations of everyone else, 
and accepting the consequences of mockery, ostracization, unemployment, and worse. We're not called to be pragmatic, but faithful. To say, God has said this, and so I will do it. What we'll see us hold the line is a simple, straightforward, unerring obedience to the Word of God, even if that means the fiery furnace. You can do it perfect and still get fired. You can do it perfect and still lose friends. You can do it perfect and still be slandered and tolerant. You can do it perfect and still face the fire. Don't bow when you're called to stand. But don't stand when you can bend. I want to hit a couple aspects with this because this text can be appropriated in, I think, unhelpful ways by Christ followers. Um, Think about that Washington or the, the Wall Street Journal article on, on pronouns. When asked about your pronouns, don't answer. That's, that's the author's opinion. Is the author correct? No, I don't answer out loud. It'll make it weird for all of us. <laughs> but is the author correct? In this room, I guarantee people, some would say yes, and some would say no. And probably many of us would go like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The application to, to, to not bow when we're supposed to stand, or the, or the idea, the principle, it's so clear. But applying it is so fuzzy. When are you supposed to do? I, that is the line I will not cross. Problem is some Christians draw lines everywhere. This text isn't a license to be obnoxious. Yes, amen. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> it's not a license to be obnoxious. It's not a license to be belligerent in your workplaces or your schools or your sports teams or your families or your neighborhoods. You know, don't bow when it's time to stand, but don't stand when you can bend. In other words, follow the model of these exiles. They weren't constantly picking fights. They weren't constantly complaining. They weren't constantly criticizing the culture. They weren't constantly stiff-arming everyone. That's not what they were doing. You know, embrace the, the complexity of living as exiles in this culture. And here, here's some suggestions. Grab the Bible, hold it over your head and say, I want to submit to this as best as I can, and grab some friends who do the same and say, what do I do? And under the Bible and in community, try to figure out, do I, got, do I need to stand here? Do I say, I can't, I, I can't do it? Or can I bend? Don't bow when you should stand. Don't stand when you can bend. And when you stand, stand Christ-like. Look like Christ. Let's be honest. Christians are known at times for standing for the right things in the wrong way. They stand like jerks. This text is not a license to be obnoxious or rude or harsh or mean or filled with rage. 
or hateful. Oh, we're going to talk about this coming up in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to spend a whole sermon on it. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were not those things. It's interesting because that's not their names. Like, that's how we know them, most of us. That's not their names. That wasn't their God-given, parentally applied names that honored their, their true God. They were renamed after pagan gods. And throughout this text, that's how they're commanded. You know what they don't do? King, that's not our name. Don't call me that. You know how they address the king? King. Two times. Oh, king. Oh, king. You won't find a single spot, actually, in the book of Daniel where the exiles were rude, demeaning, filled with hate towards their whole culture. We shouldn't find it in Christians or in the church either. I love this line from Shiloh, I've used it before, from the New Reformation. We don't have the right to cast off the fruit of the Spirit in the name of standing for truth. Boy, that's pertinent to us. Because you're all on Facebook. Get off Facebook. <laughs> Get into Galatians. <laughs> It'll work out better. We don't have the right. Like, you, you might be standing for the right thing. But you got to stand like Christ. Choose not to bow. And when you stand, stand Christ-like. And when we do stand up, even if you stand up perfectly, you'll likely face some consequences. But there is some comfort in this text that makes it possible. I set my timer on this sermon, and I knew that was a joke. Um, but I really, I didn't want to break this one up. I think it's really important, and so I will move reasonably quickly here, but I just want to recognize that with you. Here's the hope and comfort we have. as people that want to stand for our God. as people who love our culture and actually stand for our God because we love our culture. Verse 19 and following, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He went from affection, he said his face was, his expression was changed. Why? Because he, they had favor in his sight. He just promoted them, and now he is angry. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Just get it as hot as you possibly can. These furnaces could be like 1,800 degrees. And he ordered some of the mighty men of the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth was like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I, I just, this is funny. This is an aside. I won't preach. The king just still messes up. <laughs> Therefore, I make a decree that any people nation, language speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruin. Culture sometimes just don't get it. Torn limb from limb, and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Oh, boy, there's a lot we could do with it. There's a lot. But let me just draw attention to a couple things. The king asked a really important question in verse 15. He says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You might feel that. Do you navigate this in your culture? Who's the God that will replace the income you'll lose if you don't get the promotion, you get laid off because you stand for what you believe is right? Who's the God that will befriend you when no one else in your class does? Who's the God that will validate and vindicate you when you're canceled? Who is that God? And this text tells us. Now, it's not clear if the fourth person in the fire, I mean, I think we all, if you're here and you're a Christian, you all want it to be Jesus. I want it to be Jesus. My guess is it is, a, is, is Christ. But, but it's not clear in this text if the fourth person in the fire is an angel. That's the reference in verse 28. Or what is known as a Christophany, which means an a, a appearance of Christ before he came in flesh. So we're, we're not positive, but here's what we can say. It was the manifest presence of God in the lives of his people to protect and deliver them. In the midst of the fire, he said, I'm with you. In the midst of your trials, he's with you. In the midst of the struggles, do I, do I, do I conform here? Is this compromise? In the midst of the insults, in the midst of the cultural stiff arms, in the midst of the frictions, God is with you. The fires will come, but you'll never be alone. God promised that actually a couple centuries earlier than this takes place. This is, I think, beautiful. Out of Isaiah 43 to one of God's prophets to come. And in this section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, that whole section was actually given to encourage the exiles that weren't even exiles yet. He said, in, in, in a couple hundred years, you're going to get carried off. And God gave a number of promises. And here's one of the promises that he gave in Isaiah 43. It says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume. Jesus promises the same thing to us. He says, surely I am with you always, until the very end of the age. As you're in that moment, and you're in that workplace, and you're trying to figure, surely I am with you always. As you're told to believe something, you go, I just don't know if this squares with what God's word says. Jesus says, surely I am with you always. I'm with you in the fire. The most impressive thing I have ever seen in my entire life is my wife giving birth. Um, and like many people, we, we wrote a birthing plan. We, you know, you prepare for, for this and, okay, what do you, Katie, what do you, you, you call the shots. You tell me what you want me to do. What do you not want me to do? And, and she said to me, she said, hey, what I want you to do is that when things get really difficult, when you can tell that I'm feeling really low or really scared or really worried, I want you to lean down and, and in my ear, I want you to quote 2 Corinthians 2.19 to me. 
or two nine or twelve nine. And I said, No, you don't. You don't want me to do that. Uh, the, the midwives are going to think I'm a terrible husband, quoting Bible verses to you. Don't put me in that spot. She says, no, I really want you to. I really want you to. And so the, the verse she wanted me to quote is, is this one. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And, and I asked her, I actually asked her this morning, I said, you wanted me to quote that why? Because I wanted to be reminded that God is with me. That God is with me in my weakness, and God is with me in this struggle, and that his grace is all that I need. And I quoted it, and she didn't hit me, so it worked out. Um, and God wants you to know that. He's with you in your fires. He's with you in your trials. He's with you as you hear the siren call to just bow down. Just, oh, no one will know. Just bend the knee. It's okay. God is with you. One more thing, and I'll finish quickly with this. Verse 27, I love this picture. The fire had no power over their bodies. Remember, they went and bound up. They have all their clothing. You know, any of us set by a campfire, we know this text has got to be a miracle. You know, there's no, they're not singed. There's no smell of smoke on them at all. It's, it's, it's a picture of God's comprehensive deliverance and his comprehensive salvation. We go lots of places with that. I'm going to go to the most stunning place that we see it, though, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the ultimate declaration that God is with us in the trials, that God himself would come into our trials, that Jesus would enter into the furnace of affliction and temptation and trials and struggles and cultural conflicts with us. And then he actually gave us the most ultimate deliverance, which wasn't one out of temporary furnaces. See, see the biggest issue that we face actually isn't the fiercest fire that we face. is not the rejection from our culture, but the rejection from our God. And Christ went into that furnace of God's holy judgment. And you notice in this text, only three come out. Only three come out. See, Christ emancipated us from the things that, that he, he delivered us from, from what we deserved upon the cross where he took all of God's judgment and all, all of his, 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 his holy vindication. And he extinguished those flames he took the, the, the ultimate fire so that we can face the lesser fires. Oh, you might get fired, but you'll never be forsaken by God. Oh, you might get stiff-armed by your friends, but the Father will embrace you. And he guaranteed it by giving Christ mockery, lawsuits, unemployment, slander, But in Christ, you're beloved and adopted and claimed and guaranteed an inheritance. What more do we need to be able to stand when we're supposed to stand? Culture might be hostile. It might threaten you if you don't conform, but Christ has already delivered us from the ultimate fire. What more do we need? Make your choice, and your choice will make you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, because of Jesus, we do not need to fear the fire, and this world will have trouble, but help us to take heart and focus on the one that who has overcome the world. Give us courage to stand when we need to. Give us wisdom to know when to bend, and grant us grace to know you, our God, as the God who is with us in the furnace who protects us, and who will ultimately and eternally deliver us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.